There's a mysterious disease affecting millions of Americans, and some doctors claim it doesn't even exist. Tonight, we look into chronic Lyme disease and the fight to get the devastating condition, the recognition and resources it deserves. MetroFocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. There are over 2 million Americans currently suffering from an illness that doctors claim does not even exist. We're talking about chronic Lyme disease, a condition in which patients continue to experience serious medical problems stemming from Lyme disease long after finishing their standard antibiotic treatment. Now, despite the alarming numbers, the mere existence of chronic Lyme disease is a hotly contested debate in the medical community, as many doctors refuse to even acknowledge that what their patients are experiencing is legitimate. A new documentary titled The Quiet Epidemic details this fight between patients and doctors and examines the complex history surrounding one of the world's most mysterious diseases. Here's a quick preview. As a kid, I was very eager. I was very active. I loved to dance. But those things about me started to change. Even though I knew something was wrong, I never imagined it would be this. Empty meds. Those are all full. This is what life became. There are more cases than HIV and breast cancer combined. Right now, my hands are burning. You could do all the right things and get bit by a tech, and it'll change your world forever. I was having a lot of patients coming into my office with bullseye rashes, and about 80% would get better with antibiotics, but 20% would not. Here's a disease that's affecting a lot of people, can be costly, and there's been a very active effort to define not Lyme disease away, but chronic Lyme disease away. They saw nothing wrong in the laboratory test, and they figured she must be faking it. This is one of the most controversial, divisive debates in medicine today. The Lyme disease bacteria is definitely one of the smartest on the planet, knows how to change forms. Every doctor I've been to is saying, it's all yeah. in your head. You still have these doctors who are digging their heels in the sand. If you can image this, I'm not sure there's a controversy anymore. You have your answer. I'm not going crazy. You're not going crazy. <laughs> How many people go through this and then just go home and suffer in silence? 
And joining me now are three people currently living with chronic Lyme disease. First, I'd like to welcome Lindsay Keys. Lindsay is the producer and co-director of The Quiet Epidemic. Lindsay, welcome to Metro Focus. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Next, I'd like to welcome Winslow Crane Murdoch. Winslow is the film's other co-director. Winslow, welcome to Metro Focus. Hi, thanks for having us. Absolutely. And last but certainly not least, I'd like to welcome Julia Brzezzi. Julia is a chronic Lyme patient featured in the documentary, whose story we will hear much more about tonight. Julia, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Winslow and Lindsay, whenever we do a story uh, about a documentary film or something like that, I always try to ask the filmmakers, uh, why was it, why was now the right time for this story? What made this the moment that this was the right story to tell? And Winslow, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, you know, I think that this was the right story to tell because Lyme disease has been a massive problem in the United States for a very long time and the problem's only getting worse. And so the film doesn't get into this too much, but climate change is certainly a big factor. Uh, moving Lyme disease across the country and, uh, and across the world, um, ticks are becoming more and more of an issue. But what we know is that this has been an issue for a very long time. And so that's why we felt the film needed to be made now. We also felt it needed to be made now because Lindsay and I met at a doctor's office in upstate New York where we were both diagnosed with Lyme disease. Um, and so for us, it was a way to sort of explain the, the strange world that we had fallen into. And we were both filmmakers and we had gotten this diagnosis and we were on our journey of healing. Um, and we figured, you know, looking at what existed already um, in the Lyme disease landscape, we figured that a film needed to be made that could explain to people why Lyme disease is so controversial, why it is such a huge issue and why we need to pay more attention to it. Of course. And Lindsay, I'm wondering from your perspective, um, something like chronic Lyme, why would that be such a, I guess, a contested issue? I mean, if so many people feel as though they're struggling with this, it seems odd that the medical community would say, no, you're not. Yeah, it's definitely odd. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into by being bitten by ticks. No, although that wasn't our choice. Uh, and then making the film itself, I, we were, you know, just thrust into an investigation that went back to when Lyme was first discovered in 1975 and found that there actually used to be much more openness to the existence of chronic Lyme disease and the severity of Lyme. There's research that that was published in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s that describe Lyme disease as potentially life-threatening, long-lasting, chronic, neurologic, that it could be passed potentially in utero from mother to child. And then all of a sudden, there is a 180, and it became this easy-to-diagnose, straightforward-to-cure illness, and that's really what the film explores. Why is that? <laughs> well, of course. Uh, Julie, I want to bring you in and just get a little bit of your experience with this. Like, tell us your, I guess, uh, Lyme journey, for lack of a better description. Sure. Um, well, I grew up as a very active, healthy kid. I was a dancer, a sports player, um, a very active member of my community. And when I was nine years old, um, I was bitten by a tick. Um, what had a uh, developed a bullseye rash, went to my pediatrician with it, and um, she kind of sent us home, told us not to worry about it. And two years later, um, 
I suddenly become paralyzed and develop an onset of very serious symptoms of Lyme disease symptoms. And I went from, I, I spent a summer of my um, sixth grade year at 11 years old, um, going from hospital to hospital, misdiagnosed and undiagnosed. Um, my dad was suddenly my caretaker and, um, you know, there was, we didn't have any answers for a long time. And, um, until my dad finally realized it after researching my symptoms and, um, we went to a Lyme disease specialist and she put me on treatment and I got, you know, a little bit better cause I was very severely ill, um, but I'm still wheelchair bound and um, I still deal with Lyme disease symptoms. So, Well, Winslow, I'm wondering how much of the film is able to get into so many of the, I guess, compounding issues. Like, for example, uh, having covered the issue of Lyme, I now understand that there's great possibility of co-infections, that you don't just have Lyme. You could have something else like, I don't know, Babesia or something like that. Or the fact that uh, not all tick bites result in that easy to spot bullseye rash. And of course, depending on what your skin tone is, the bullseye rash could be missed altogether. Like how much, it seems like there's a lot under the umbrella of Lyme disease and how much were you able to even address? <laughs> you know, we, we tried to do our best. I think, I think that there's so much in the Lyme world and we pretty quickly realized, especially when we jumped into the edit, how much we were going to have to whittle it down in order to make a cohesive narrative that people could follow and that they could sort of step into and understand. I think, you know, the 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 whole goal of the film was to create something that could be accessible outside of the Lyme community. So people that knew nothing about it could find their way into it. That definitely led us to have um, less of a long discussion about some of these other topics that you just brought up that I think are really, really important because this was sort of the starting point for folks. Um, certainly we do talk about co-infections. Um, Ticks can carry up to 18 different pathogens. Um, they are really nasty little creatures. And when they bite you, they can give you a whole host of things. I think when we were making the film, there was a study that came out of Columbia that suggested that like close to 60% of the ticks in the sort of tri-state area were carrying Lyme disease. And 30% had Babesia, 10% had anaplasmosis. And so you go down that list and your, your likelihood of being infected by one of these tick bites starts to get really, really high. And so that just shows how, um, how big of a problem that we're facing right now. I think also in terms of the, the conflict around Lyme disease, we do not have a lot of good research that is going into what happens when you're infected with multiple things. So when you have these overlapping infections, how does that then affect people and how does that affect their outcomes when you're just giving them one antibiotic for a potential tick bite? So those are things that definitely need to be looked into further. We do cover it a little bit in the film, um, but really Lyme disease was our entry point because even that is so is so controversial and so complex. Um, and there's a whole host of other issues along with it. One of the things that you mentioned is the bullseye rash. I think it's important to mention. I mean, that is the hallmark sign of Lyme disease is this bullseye rash. But not everyone gets the bullseye rash. In fact, if you get the bullseye rash, you're really lucky um, because it's a sign that says that you should get treated and you should get treated right away. So we know that maybe 60% of people get the rash, maybe less. Um, some people get a rash, but it doesn't look like a bullseye rash. Uh, as you talked about different skin tones, doctors often miss it. I mean, it was, we had people say to us early on that early on in Lyme disease, they thought that uh, black people didn't get Lyme disease because they just weren't diagnosing it. We know that that's absolutely not true. It's all about what you're looking for um, and how you're looking for it, right? And so these are um, 
really big issues within the community that all do need to be addressed. And and we start to get in, into it in the film, but we only had an hour and a half to well, go into all of this and to go back through all the history and all of that. So. Of course. And there's just so, so, so much to be discussed. But building off of also what we were hearing uh, about Julia's story, Lindsay, I'm wondering how much from your perspective and even with your own story does uh, the idea of not being believed, I mean, I, I, I'm not quite sure how best to describe it, but when you're going to doctor after doctor and you're describing um, symptoms that you know are happening to your body, but perhaps because that medical professional doesn't have something they can clearly uh, use to check it off and be like, oh, well, then it must be this, then the patient must be wrong. Like, I'm just imagining... Frequently when someone is dealing with a chronic disease, a lot of times people will say your state of mind is so important in healing. When your state of mind is being questioned by the people who are supposed to be helping you, how does that help you heal? <laughs> it doesn't. It, it, people who are dealing with Lyme disease are fighting a battle on so many fronts. So many people are, are fighting the medical establishment. They're begging for belief in the absence of an accurate diagnostic test. It is hard to confirm whether or not someone has a Lyme disease, an, a, an actual Lyme disease infection. There's not a test to determine whether you actively have the infection, whether or not the infection has been cleared, whether or not the treatment is working. So everyone is sort of just shooting in the dark here and, and and we don't even know if the the therapies that we're using are effective or not. So so that's a really hard situation to be in as a patient because you want to know that you're taking you know pharmaceuticals often, and that they're actually making a difference. At what point do you say I'm cured? And and the the lack of that accurate diagnostic just really fuels this debate because the debate around chronic Lyme disease really comes down to do people need further treatment or are they cured? And one side of this debate would say, well, they received their two to four weeks of doxycycline, so they're cured. And the other side of the debate says, no, there is research coming out of incredible, credible institutions that show that the bacteria can survive antibiotic treatment. And in some cases, patients need further treatment. And when you feel like you're literally dying and someone is telling you prove that you're sick, there's a line in our film where Dr. Spector says, it should not be on the patient to prove that they're sick. It should be on us as medical professionals to find out what's going on with them and help. So it's a really tough battle. It's physical, it's mental, it's financial, out-of-pocket healthcare expenses are bankrupting families. My own family has been impacted by that. People are having to sell their homes and live in their cars to afford Lyme disease treatment for their children. It is just it is just outrageous that this is a disease that was discovered 50 years ago. We don't have an accurate diagnostic. We don't have an effective therapeutic and insurance companies are not covering treatment that is demonstratingly getting people better. So that's one of our goals with the quiet epidemic is to really examine this. This is a hard situation, but looking away from it is not going to solve it. We need to face it head on. Julia, I'm wondering for your experience, you know, you told us about the journey, but roughly how long did it take before you were able to find a doctor who listened to you, uh, believed you, and was ready and able to treat you? Um, it took months and it, it only took... That, that's pretty short compared to a lot of people who go through this. You know, people are 
in that situation for years and years. Um, I was thankful enough to have my dad, who was kind of my advocate. He is my advocate. And, you know, he was defending me and researching the next person to bring me to. And thankfully, we found a doctor who knows about Lyme disease and was able to treat me. But um, it took a very long time. It took, it took, it felt like a very long time. You know, and in those months, I saw numerous doctors in hospitals and outpatient who, you know, did tell me that I was crazy and, you know, you know, there's no, we, we don't have any evidence and, you know, there's nothing to explain this. And so the only, uh, the only thing we can give you is that you're making it up. And meanwhile, I had real symptoms. You know, I was running fevers. I had extremely low blood pressure. My hair was falling out. I had numbness and paralysis. And, um, you know, these, these are the things I was being told when I had these real symptoms. Um, you know, but I thankfully found a doctor. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't know where to go or who to go trust or who to go to next. And they're continuously told that they're, you know, going crazy and that they're not really feeling these things and they're not given answers. Um, so even though it took longer than it should have taken, you know, I should have been able to go to a doctor and been given an answer right away. Um, you know, it took shorter than it does for a lot of people. Okay. Well, Winslow, I'm wondering, listening to uh, what we've heard from Lindsay, what we've heard from Julia, how important is it that uh, not just Lyme, but chronic Lyme, that these co-infections, that these long lingering uh, illnesses be recognized by the CDC so that perhaps uh, more doctors can have uh, perhaps clear charts or tests or something so that uh, this journey from infection to illness to treatment doesn't take as long as it seems to. Yeah, I think it's I think it's of the utmost importance. You know, I think um, five hundred thousand people a year are getting diagnosed with Lyme disease. We think that ten to twenty percent of those go on to have um, long-lasting illness of some sort. Those are numbers that we that are that are estimates because we don't have a good test. We don't know the true numbers. It could be far beyond that. Um, so year after year after year, you start to add that up. This is a huge problem. So I think that it has to be taken seriously. One of the things that one of the doctors says in the film is, you know, unless you acknowledge it as a problem, it won't be treated as a problem. And so that's very much the first step. And what we realized is that, you know, I think that this war between these two sides in the chronic Lyme community or in the chronic Lyme world. Um, has become so intense that a lot of the research that's been done has been about how do we prove each other wrong instead of how do we ask better questions about how to get patients better, you know? And so that was something that we really wanted to do in the film was feature scientists who are doing true scientific inquiry and who are going about this in the right way. Um, one of those doctors is Dr. Neil Spector at Duke University, who's featured in the film. He was such an incredible, incredible man. And he was a scientist, but he led with his heart, you know, and he let compassion guide the questions that he was asking scientifically. And I think he was one of the best scientists that I've ever met. And what his whole goal was, is how do we bring new people into this to approach this in a way that's open, that's honest, uh, and that leads us where it may, you know, he didn't care what we were going to call it. He didn't care what we found, but he wanted to actually ask questions about, okay, we see this population of people who's suffering instead of stigmatizing them, let's actually ask what's going on and let's try to figure it out. And he made 
massive strides in, in a sh very short period of time because of the openness that he brought to the field and because of the people that he brought with him who were cancer researchers and other types of researchers who just knew how to ask good questions, how to go about that in the right way. And they unlocked the field in this really incredible way. And other people are following his suit. There's amazing research happening at universities across the country, um, at top-notch universities across the country, where this is starting to be taken seriously. What we still see is that at a governmental level, a lot of the funding that has come out of the government is going to the same individuals that still deny that chronic Lyme disease exists. And so that's one of the things that has to change. We are excited because I think there are some new folks stepping into these positions at the CDC, at the NIH, and there is some new funding that started to be unlocked for Lyme disease research. And it seems that this is starting to go to better places. And so our fingers are crossed on that. And I think we'll, we will wait to see. There's a lot of really exciting science happening in the Lyme disease community. And that's um, really encouraging. I think the problem is right now is that it's all based at the scientific level. And as it hasn't filtered down to the patient yet. And so that's what we're waiting for is for the scientific findings that, that are happening right now to filter down to the patient experience. So it's not so hard to be a Lyme disease patient. All right. Well, actually, you know, speaking of uh, Dr. Spector, uh, we do have a clip from of him from the movie. So let's toss to that real quick. What kind of a disease is it that you're ostracized by the very community that should be helping you? I don't think you have to have an MD to think there's something wrong here. What is it that these people have in common? Now, you could either say they all have in common that they're crazy, or you could say I, there, there's like something out there that's causing this. This may be some of the first Lyme science being done on this campus. And in fact, some of these projects are really the first to be done in this country. These are ideas that I've been working on and my colleagues have been working on in the cancer field for you know 20 plus years. And now we're finally going to be applying this to Lyme disease. Now, given what we've just seen, uh, Lindsay, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about who Dr. Spector was to you and um, why there are or perhaps are not more doctors like him. Yeah, Dr. Spector became a very close friend. I think of him daily and I wish that he was still with us because he just, he was so much more than just a doctor and a scientist. He, he really saw himself first and foremost as a human. <laughs> He recognized that having letters after his name and going to Harvard and working at Duke wasn't simply enough, that you had to be, as Winslow said, a loving, caring, compassionate human. And he, he radiated that to every person that he met, which was just incredible. So he's a role model for all of us, whether you're in medicine or not. I think that more doctors should watch our film and follow his lead um in just a few years like winslow said he he made so so much progress because he knew firsthand what it meant to suffer he had a heart transplant from lyme disease he fell through the cracks of the medical system and he is a harvard trained physician himself so what does that say about people in other communities who don't have that knowledge or who don't have the resources or the access, how much suffering is happening in those communities? So I think that we're definitely carrying Dr. Spector forward with us on our mission as we move forward with releasing the film out into the world. And, and you know, we're we're honored to to carry on his his legacy of 
staying open and leading with our hearts. Well, uh, I guess quickly, if it's possible for a question about Lyme, but do you see more people in the medical community being open to becoming uh, Lyme literate, for lack of a better description? I mean, I think that a lot of people are being personally affected by Lyme disease at this point, and that's what's driving them. Julia, her one brother is a doctor now, and her other bro brother is a medical student going to be a doctor. Julia herself is studying medicine, and I'm sure she can talk about that more. But this is what we're witnessing, is that the people who who are in denial of this issue change their minds very quickly when it affects one of their loved ones and they have no choice but to go to a Lyme literate doctor to get better. So I think there is more of an openness now. We actually filmed a, a conference in uh, Warsaw, Poland, an ILADS conference. That's a, a medical organization that acknowledges the complexity of Lyme disease. There were doctors there from all across Europe. We were standing in this room and there were probably 10 different languages being spoken around us. And it was all people who were really wanting to learn more. So I think that the movement is happening. I think that there's still resistance, but everyone knows someone who's suffering from Lyme disease right now. And so it's becoming much, much harder to look away. All right. Well, we have about a minute left, but Julia, what would you want um, someone who is perhaps just now, okay, I heard about Lyme disease, but I didn't really know chronic Lyme was a thing. Like what would be the important takeaway uh, for someone who has not been touched by this disease from your perspective? Watch the quiet epidemic. because <laughs> um, It's very good at explaining it all. Um, but also I think, you know, just be open-minded because it, it doesn't discriminate. It affects everybody and anyone. And um, it can happen to you. Um, a lot of people have it. They don't even know they have it. Um, so I think it's just about being aware of the, the tick problem that we have in this world and the dangerous, dangerous things it could lead to. Um, so yeah, just being aware, um, being compassionate of others and yeah, just being open-minded and watch our movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a very uh, positive note to leave, leave it on, even for such a challenging subject. So I want to thank all of my guests, uh, Lindsay Keyes, producer and co-director of The Quiet Epidemic, as well as Winslow Crane Murdoch, the film's other co-director. Thank you. And of course, Julia Brzezzi, a chronic Lyme patient who's featured in the documentary, Thank you all so much for joining us, but more importantly, being vulnerable enough to share your own medical journeys on such a challenging subject. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.